one of the single most important subjects of all of the book of Proverbs as we look at uh, uh, wisdom from God's Word, one of the most important subjects is the subject of the words that you speak and the words you receive. And so um, this, this uh, idea of, of, of words and their power runs throughout the book. And so I, I gave you quite a few texts here, and you will see as we read through it what, what the Holy Spirit thinks about words. So I'd like you to read out loud with me, even though it's a, it's a long uh, series of texts. I like it when you read God's Word together. So let's read. <laughs> you just need this. All right, so let's read together. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous escapes from trouble. From the fruit of his mouth a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. Whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Now, this idea of your words and our words begins to say that how you speak, how you uh, use your words, will either make or break your life. And so, we're going to look at in this, these texts that I gave to you, we're going to look at the power of words. We're going to look at the very character of your language and what that says about your character. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the healing of words. Now, there's, there's three things I'd like you to know about the negative power of words. In, in verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 18 of Proverbs, it says that your words have the, have the power to wound. And it uses the, the image that when you are wounding people with your words, you are slashing them with a sword. Now, it also uses the idea of recklessness and rashness. And so, there's, in, in a way, there's sort of three rash sword thrusts that we use with our words. The first is 
that often we will make very rash and unrealistic promises that cannot be kept and that therefore will lead to disappointment. There are many, many times that I've heard from people after they have made a rash promise, I will make it up to you. You can never make it up to someone. You have slashed them with a sword. They are now scarred in the area of anticipation, expectation, and they no longer can trust your promises. Also, there are many of us who make overstatements, rash statements, reckless statements. If the words that you say are not credible, you are not trustworthy. After a while, people will stop trusting you. They'll stop believing what you have to say. Those of us uh, who grew up, you know, in another generation, we heard all the time about the boy who cried wolf. Used to have nightmares about the wolf myself. But, uh, you know, the boy who cried wolf, you know, he thought it was funny, he thought it was hilarious to get all the people worked up. And then one day there was a wolf and no one came. There's, a, there, there's such a sense in which even if it costs you, if you make a promise, if you say something, it needs to be credible. If it's not credible, you're unjust. You're unfair. The other thing that many of us do is that because we often do not even understand ourselves, we defend ourselves with rash and reckless criticisms. We use our first impressions, which later we find out were wrong. But we've already recklessly slashed somebody by being offended, critical, or, or just by lashing out. We wound with our words. But the Scripture doesn't say that we merely wound. It actually says the power of life and death is in your words. That words can actually kill. In the, in the Old Testament, the word life had three spheres it's talking about. Life has to do with your own biology, your own, you know, your own existence. But life didn't just mean your own existence. It often also meant your interior life or your inner life, your psychology, who you are on the inside. And thirdly, life always has to do with how you connect with the community. So your social and communal life. And so what it's saying here is that in all three of these areas, your words have the power to either bring life to your body, life to your inner life, or life to your community, or by not understanding the power of your words, it brings death. Now, it may seem strange to you, but the Bible's saying that your words can physically kill someone. I have actually seen this... Uh, in people's lives, that when, when they began to get certain words, their bodies gave up, they gave in to disease, and they died. I was watching uh, football yesterday, and I saw Penn State. And for many, many years, uh, probably one of the most respected coaches in the world was the coach of Penn State, Joe Paterno. And when that whole situation of sexual abuse and his coach and and this, this man that was close to him was found to be guilty. And then there was this, this accusation, whether true or false, of cover-up. And, and some accusation of, of, of uh, you know, control and things like that. This coach went from being you know, just unimpeachable to being suspected. And in, 
the three months after this all really came out, he died. Within three months of being an icon to being a villain, in a sense, he, he died. Now, the cancer killed him, but what, what happens is often the body can no longer fight if it no longer has any hope. Words kill. They, don't, they have the power of life and death, the Scripture says. Now, they had the ability not only to kill the body, but they kill the spirit. Now, let me explain what I mean by this. You and I, throughout our day, whatever's going on in your life, you're going to have, you have thoughts, you have reactions, you have all kinds of things going on. Martin Luther had a great uh, illustration where he said, the birds fly overhead, but you don't have to let them make a nest in your hair. So when thoughts are coming and going, you don't necessarily have to let those thoughts then settle in and become a belief. If you think something, it doesn't mean it's right. Nor does it mean it's true. But here's the issue. Once you put words to it, it's now real. For example, I mean, I'm sure none of you have ever done this, but, but I have, in, in my marriage, I have, particularly in the first nine years of our marriage, I had a lot of anger at Lisa. And in that anger, because... Uh, I didn't know how to deal with it. And in that anger, I would I'd sometimes go, oh, I just hate her. I just hate her. And then, after a while, I'd say it. Now it's out there. And I remember a season when we were in such conflict with each other, we would say words like, do you want a divorce? See, as soon as the thought becomes words, it becomes reality. Now, it has power. See, as long as it's a thought, you can reject it. As soon as it's a word, it's real. Now you've got to deal with it. Now, <laughs> let me add, you know, Proverbs was writing this 2,600 years ago. I mean, they understood human nature from the beginning here. Some of us, we not only have words, we have text. We have emails. You ever notice that when someone's mad at you and sends you an email, it looks like it's in all capital letters? <laughs> or even if they're not mad, but it sounds mad? Because you have no idea what their physical posture is as they're writing that, but you're like, they are mad at me. I have found that I can never settle a conflict by text. I can never settle a conflict. I can throw gasoline on it. I can escalate it. But I can never settle it by text or email because they don't even know what my intent is. All they hear are the words. And the words can be interpreted. Now they're, now they're written. You see how powerful words are? Words make real what's inside. Even if you don't mean it to. So they have the power to kill. Now, one of the issues that that uh, comes up in terms of our life is the issue of gossip and slander. Now, some people are very addicted to both of these things. You know, it's just the, the, the hunger, the addiction to information, to knowing things, to knowing secret things makes many really wounded people feel special. But it's counterfeit. Even in the church, there's a, there's a system of gossip often. 
And the system of gossip is, I just need you to pray for so-and-so. And then you begin to give information. You know, she's just really a wretched, horrible, awful person that just needs a whole lot of prayer. And you start giving out information. You're like, I'm just doing this for her spiritual well-being. No, you're not. You're gossiping. And your intent is to do things that are not good. And so the scripture says, do not gossip, do not slander. They have the power to kill. Slander is an interesting one. Now, there are some people who are just intentionally slanderous. They'll say any lie. But for the most part, slander begins as a truth that people do not get as emotional about as you do. What happens is that you're, you're all upset about something. You've been hurt. You've been offended. And you have a truth in there that so-and-so did this, or so-and-so said that, or so-and-so looked at me the wrong way. And I'm so offended, and I have so much anger. And so, so you start telling what the person did. And the other person goes, that doesn't sound so bad. Yeah, but let me... And then you begin to embellish. Because the idea is... You've got to feel what I feel, and I will say whatever I need to say, so you will feel what I feel and hate them as much as I hate them. And for many of us, what happens is we believe we're good people, and everybody else is bad. And so it must be that person is a monster, because I would never be this angry if it wasn't their fault. Because I'm a good person. I... Every time people get up and say, I just want you to know I have a good heart, I just want to punch them in the good mouth. (laughs) Sylvia loves it when I say that. I'm like, you don't have a good heart. If you are, you're the only one. I don't think you're the only one. I don't think even the one in the scriptures that said had a heart after God still has said, created me a clean heart. So if David had a heart after God, and he probably could say, I had a better heart than you, he still had to say, create in me a new heart. So somewhere along the line, you've got to quit saying and defending and denying an untruth that says you have a good heart. Because if you have a good heart, then you'll think slander and gossip's okay because it's coming from a good place. That's a deception. And it will not, you will not change your, your way of operating till you realize your way of operating has the power of death. Now, the third thing it says is not only does it have the power of death for other people, or the power to wound, all of this, it says it has the power to enslave you. It has the power to enslave you because you become enslaved to those words that you have said. You now are bound. If you say to somebody, I hate you, you are now bound to that hatred. If you say to your spouse, I want a divorce, you are now enslaved to what you've said. If you say to your friend, you know, you are no good, I, whatever it is, I hate you, whatever it is that you say to your friends, I want nothing more to do with you, now you've lost your friend. The problem with lying, friends, and, and of speaking lies as if they're truth, is it destroys for you the one thing that you need in life. You need relationship. And when you use your words to sever, to slash, when you use them rashly and recklessly, and when you use them hurtfully, 
You are slashing from yourself the one thing you need to flourish. Because, see, if, if what you say cannot be trusted, then you cannot have relationship. You can have a bunch of acquaintances. You can have 500 Facebook friends. But none of that's going to truly meet the need of relationship. Evil words destroy you. Good words bear fruit. James talks about what is it that brings quarrels and fights? It says it's envy inside of you. It's all this stuff that's going on inside of you. And then the words that come out of your mouth reveal that we hurt, that we even murder each other with our words. So the power of speech is then has to be something where you begin to say, I want to I turn this around. I want, I want the power of life to become, begin coming in, uh, in my words. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but you were born with a hunger for words. You were made to put words to what you feel. You were made to put words to what you need, what you want, what, who you are. you are. You are made with a hunger for words. Now, the, the interesting thing is the studies say that women have a hunger for 25,000 words a day. <laughs> and men have a hunger for about 12,500. So usually what happens is by the time a man has gone to work and, and uh, he's already spent 12,500 words... He gets home, his wife still has 12,500 to go. And he's like, I have none left. Now, in my house, it's the opposite. Lisa has 12,500. I have 25,000. She's much quieter than I am. I, you know, I am much, much more verbose than she is. But here's the, here's the, here's the issue. How you use your words will reveal... Whether you're a wise person, whether you're a simple person, simple meaning that you're undeveloped and immature, or whether you're a fool. A fool says in his own heart, I don't need anyone to tell me how to use my words. I know exactly how to use my words. And so, as we look at this together, then we, we need to see what, what then is the, is the character that I need to have in order for my language to begin to express wisdom. If you think about, you think about words from the time you're a child to the time you're an adult, there's a transition. You have, you have an awakening that takes place in teenage years where emotions are explosive and all kinds of feelings start happening to you. And, and you have no words for them. You have no vocabulary for them. For example, just... just the feeling of anger. Anger is so multifaceted. I mean, anger could be that you're irritated. It could be you're annoyed. It could be you're frustrated. It could be that you're enraged, that you're full of temper. But all you know is when you, when you kind of hit that puberty and you hit adolescence, all you know is they just have all this. <clears throat> so as a parent, you go, what are you feeling? I don't know. <laughs> you know they're feeling all kinds of stuff. And they go, I don't know, I don't know, please don't ask me. Then they text their friends everything they're feeling. <laughs> it's amazing how difficult it is to go from being a simple, undeveloped, immature person to a wise person. And the, the biblical 
test is your words. Do your words begin to reflect who you really are on the inside? Do you know how to begin to bring those words up, those feelings up, name them? See, if you can name your feelings, you can manage them. If you cannot name them, they will manage you. This is really the maturation that needs to happen. Most parents don't realize your kids don't need to know how to play soccer. They need to know how to handle defeat. They need to know how to handle other teammates. They need to know how to handle what's really happening in life when they're on a soccer field or when they're not. Because your job as a parent is to help them go from being simple to wise. And if you don't do that, they go from simple to fools. Because our job as parents is to help our children name their emotions. My wife laughs at me all the time at this. But I I believe you have to have emotions about your emotions. In other words, you have to have a hierarchy of what you really value in your emotional state. If you value pity, you're pitiful. But many people... That was anointing for the moment. (laughs) And some of the people who say, I have such a good heart, are incredibly angry people. Why do they value anger? Because it makes them powerful. So they don't want to let it go because they don't want to be powerless. So they're valuing a negative emotion that has the power of death. Some people say, oh, no. Nobody cares but me. So I have to worry. Thanksgiving will not happen if it's not for me. You know? And so they, they value their anxiety. You cannot, friends, you cannot renounce and confess something you value. You cannot repent of something you value. You have to recognize it has no value or you will not repent. And so the words... I mean, I'm not saying this is the most inspirational teaching I've ever given to you, but I'm saying to you, this is the foundation. James says, you will know your true devotion by how you manage your tongue. Whether you're devoted to God or you're devoted to yourself is how we know by the way you speak. So there's this character issue that is manifest in these teachings. And it says... That in order to truly be a man or a woman of wisdom, you must be a truthful and honest person. And it's, it's fascinating to me because there are lots of people who don't tell lies, but they don't tell the truth either. There's always a holding back. There's always a hiding. Now, here's the thing. When you are deceiving someone either, either by giving half-truths or not all the truth, when you're deceiving someone, you are denying them the right to know reality. For example, if you say, let's say you're a husband, and you say to your husband, I love you, but I'm also having an affair. All of a sudden, the husband has to deal with the reality, or the wife, or what, you know, whatever it is, or a friend, and you say, 
you know, I love you, but then you go to your other friends and say how horrible this person is. That, once that friend finds out you've been talking behind their back, suddenly they realize, I love you is not real. And now, I get to decide, can I trust you? Can I not trust you? But as long as that person is hiding this whole dark side, and you're thinking, wow, they're really my friend, but they're really not your friend. And you realize, oh, this is unjust. This is unfair. When you are a hidden person, you are unjust. You are unfair. You may say life is not fair, but you're the one making it not fair. You cannot live this life without, without knowing the fullness of reality. If you're in a marriage and you're hiding stuff, how do you make decisions then? If you're in a, in a marriage and no one knows what you need or what you want and you're hiding it, how in the world will I not trip over you? Every one of us has emotional landmines. And what I'm talking about here is there are, there are a lot of people in, in relationships, and, and, and I am willing to sacrifice for anyone because Jesus has sacrificed for me. But there is this horrible thing when you have people who live in denial of reality. Everybody has to walk on eggshells around them. Ah, you can't, don't talk about that with mom. Oh, you can't, don't, oh, no. You know, you brought that dish, that bring back old memories, you know. And all of a sudden, can you imagine living life? And you're the one everyone has to walk around with, egg, like, like they're on eggshells? You know what that means? Nobody loves you. Why is that? Because nobody knows you. No one can get close to you. See, if you're not truthful and honest, you can never be intimate. If there's something hidden, I'm having a relationship with a lie. All right, I know I picked on you on that one. The second one is, he says you have to be gentle and kind. Now, gentleness is not weakness. It means nothing. It has nothing to do with weakness. Know why? Because where the word it says a soft answer, but it's, it's the idea of gentle. It says a gentle answer can break a bone. You know what it means? It's a, it's a Hebrew idiom that means if you are convinced of the truth and the truth you're convinced of is for the good of the other person it does not matter what their resistance is you will break down their resistance now how will you know it's gentle because many of us when we're trying to convince people we are anything but gentle we become more and more aggressive we become more and more direct we get bigger we try to get taller you know so how do you know well here's how you know when the listener, the one you're speaking to, says, I don't want to hear this, but it is so painfully obvious that this person loves me, and it causes them pain to say it, I will have to listen to them. You understand what I... Are you still tracking with me? Because this is helpful stuff. It can, it, you can avoid some therapy right now. <laughs> In other words, what this saying is, what you're feeling on the inside produces kindness and gentleness even though you have to say a hard thing. Amen. And you're saying it not because you're getting it off your chest. 
You're saying it to protect the other person. See, but most of us, we just get all worked up and say, I, man, I got I to gotta let them have it. I gotta, I, they, they need to know what I'm feeling. Please, no, go home. We don't need to know until you processed it. And when you processed it, it's no longer selfishness. It's now righteousness. It's now holiness. It's now agape love. And so what will happen is, no matter how much they resist, how much they argue with you, you're not going to move. Because it's for their good. You're not going to change. I mean, if, you have, if, you, if you're a parent in here and you've had kids, those kids will test you every step of the way. They will always try to figure out, how much can I get away with? And you know what the safest kids on earth are? The ones who know where the boundaries are. Anytime that you are a parent who cannot say no to your child, you will, you will hurt your child. But the no has to be about them, not you. The no has to be for their good. And so the only way that you can really train a child and keep a child safe and still say no to them is you're saying no for their sake, not your sake. Because that's what it is to have sacrificial, selfless kind of love. God never says no to you because he can't do something. I mean, I sometimes had to say no to my kids because I didn't have enough money. I heard this funny story the other day. This guy came up to me and said his daughter, his daughter was one of those who just asked for everything. So the child came up to him and said, Dad, can we have a dog? And so the dad said, you know, we're away every weekend. We can't take care of a dog. So she goes, okay, if we can't have a dog, can we have a horse? Now, most of them sit there going, what? How does that connect? <laughs> but you know what? It's awesome. It's awesome when you think about it. This kid was so safe with her father, she could ask for something completely irrational. <laughs> but he could say to her, because you know, of their situation and her, they could say, no, we're not going to have a horse. See, but God could give you a horse. He has the money. If he says no to the horse, it's for your good. It's not because he doesn't have the resources. He could give you a cow. He owns all the cattle on the thousand hills, you know. And you could ride that if you wanted to. See, it's important that we begin to understand that even our God, who has every right to be angry with us, has decided to exhaust his anger in Jesus. And so when he speaks to you, he speaks to you gently and kindly, but he never backs down and he never backs off. It is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. If you truly want to see change in other people's life, it has to be about them, not just you. Now, it also says that we have to be wise and we... And I like the word apt. It uses the word apt or fitting. As a matter of fact, what it says there in the Hebrew, it's, uh, the original means pleasant. Something that, that fits the sensibilities of the listener. Now, here's where I think God is, is really trying to go after our hearts. See, in many ways, what you and I have done is we've all honed the skills of our own default language. For example, I'm an incredibly direct speaker. My favorite way is to be direct, 
And so, some, you know, when Lisa and I used to argue in the early days, I would give her three points and then ask her to come to Jesus. That never worked. Not at all. But Lisa's way is Lisa is very indirect. She's incredibly diplomatic. She's tactful. She's just, she, she can say the worst kind of a thing, and it just sounds like something nice. I could say the nicest thing and make it sound really bad. I mean, but the problem was because I'm so direct, I don't get what she's saying. So then she gets upset because she said, I gave you all the clues. And I'm like, I don't get clues. My favorite one ever was she would get up on a Saturday morning and say, would you like to mow the grass or clean the garage? I would only hear, would you like to? And I would not like to, thank you very much. Now we could spend the rest of our life saying, why don't you understand me? Or we could say, wait a minute, I'm communicating to her. I have desires, I have needs that I want her to understand. In order for that to happen, I have to change my language so she understands me. But if you insist for the rest of your life, I'm not understood, no one listens to me, no one ever hears me, it's because you're an idiot. And you have believed that everybody should understand your language. No one understands your language. I don't even know where it came from. It's a mix-up of your mother, your father, your brothers, your sisters, the Bronx. Who knows? (laughs) Who knows where it came from? But what you have to realize is that the goal here is for them to understand you. So the Bible is saying you have to adjust to the ones you're speaking to. If you're constantly getting offended that they don't understand you, it's not their fault. The Bible says you are in control of what you say. You therefore have to adjust aptly, fittingly, So that even a difficult thing becomes pleasant. Otherwise, you're simple. Or you're foolish. I know this isn't isn't so easy to hear, but it is helpful when you think about it. That the goal is to be understood. So therefore, I have to change my default language so that people understand. Again, what you want is your words to reflect the truthfulness of your heart. It's such a beautiful thing. It says the right words are like a kiss on the lips. Now, this isn't a romantic picture at all. What this is, is a, it's actually a very powerful picture of, of community. In the, in, in the Old Testament, if you were under somebody, if you were, you were lower class, you never kissed them. You bowed to them. If they were above you, but you were close to them in status, then you kissed on the cheek. If you were equals, you kissed on the lips. It showed equality. What it's saying here is that when you speak in their language, you are saying to them, you, you and I are equals. I value you. You're important to me. That's powerful when you think about it. So the the other two, courageous and forthright. So at this point, there is a need that your words actually 
you know, that you're bold, that you're not, you're not holding back. I don't know if you've ever been in this, but I've been in meetings before where like a leader that I was working with, I remember this one time he goes, I'm going to let him have it this time. Oh, I'm going to let him have it. He has this meeting and he comes out and he goes, was I too harsh? I was like, what even did you say? I have no idea what you just told them and neither do they. But he's, see, what happened was because he felt all this disappointment and he felt all this uh, you know, anger at his staff, he thought because he felt it, they would feel it. But I, I'm like, if your words don't reflect it, they have no idea what you're even wanting. And so you're mad because they haven't lived up to your expectations, but you've never let them know what your expectations are. So you have no right to really be mad at them because you've never communicated to them. It takes courage. It takes forthrightness to say, here's what I expect. Here's what I need from you. Then, you know, the last one of these is, is that there has to be an economy of speech. It says, if you have so many words, there will always be transgression in that. So that speaks to those of us who love to talk is that when there's so many words. Now, some of you who don't have so many words will go, see? But notice what it says in uh, verse 17, 28. It says, even a fool, when he holds his peace, is counted wise. But you're still a fool! You understand? And he that shuts his lips is esteemed, but he's esteemed on something counterfeit. So, the... The interesting thing is, those of us who tend to be courageous aren't always kind. And those of us who are kind are not always courageous. So, how do we heal and have words that healing? Well, it says, a wise man's heart guides his mouth. Jesus says, out of what fills your heart, that's what the mouth speaks. So, the issue, friends, is not the issue of words. It's the issue of the heart. Isn't it interesting, in the book of Acts... The first thing the Holy Spirit healed was speech. The first healing of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost was speech. People began to speak in in tongues they didn't even know. But they did so so that the people who spoke in those tongues, who had that as their heart language would hear the Word of God, the good news of Jesus, in their own language. And that day, 3,000 gave their lives to Christ. So the first thing is not to say, let me just suppress my words. The first thing is to say, what are my words telling me about my heart? See, the heart is the, the center. It's the control center for your whole self. It's that place where what you're really living for comes forth, what you're really believing, what you really are committed to. And so the question comes in many ways, will you not be both honest and truthful? Will you not go in there and say, there's a lot of confusion in my heart. There's a lot of pain in my heart. And the only one who can heal that pain is Jesus. No one ever spoke like Jesus did. You know, and when He went to the cross... He received the ultimate silent treatment. God was silent with him so that God would never have to be silent with you. So 
I'm going to ask you to stand with me. In a little bit, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, before we leave, I'm going to ask the prayer, our prayer ministers, we have some elders here. I'm going to ask them to be up here to pray with you. James, James, the book of James says, we'll know the truth about you by the way you manage your tongue. So here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to take your hand and just put it on your mouth. And we're going to do something straight scriptural. Straight out of Romans 6. In Romans 6 it says, If I have offered the members of my body as an instrument of unrighteousness, I become a slave to that unrighteousness. So here's what I'd like you to do. Will you, will you say this with me? I confess and I renounce how I have offered my mouth my words, even my heart, as an instrument of unrighteousness. I cancel out all deceit, all lying words, hurtful wounding words, killing deathly words. And I declare unrighteousness you are not my master. Say it again. Unrighteousness. You are not my master. I present my mouth, my words, my heart to righteousness for the power of life. Now here's what the scripture says. If you present the members of your body as an instrument of righteousness, you become a slave to righteousness. What I believe you're doing, what the Spirit has shown me as we do this, is you're binding your words. You're binding your mouth. You're binding that part of your heart that expresses itself through words. You're binding it to the life of Christ. Now you may, you may, you may see some struggles with this, but that's that's only because the Lord wants to completely heal your heart. And He wants you to give your mouth over and over again as an instrument of righteousness. Lord, we seal what You're doing. In Jesus' name. Now I'm going to ask, I've got some, some of our prayer ministers. If you are willing to humble yourself today and say, you know, I've never really been able to control my tongue. And today I hear... That it is the power of death and life. And I want to bring life to the world that I live in. Would you come and just make a commitment today. Make a, a prayer today with one of our prayer ministers, one of our elders. And just say, I want, to, I want to put a stake in the ground and say, my words will be different. Here, here's why I say this. Here's the promise in that scripture. You will eat the fruit of what you say. So if you are... If, the, if you're beginning to speak righteousness and life, you will eat the fruit of righteousness and life. I want you to eat that fruit. I want your words, your life, your family to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. So would you make, if, if, if there are any of you and you're just saying, man, this is, this is for me today. Would you make a commitment today? Come to the altar, make a decision and say, I'm, I'm not going to let this day go. I'm going to be a man. I'm going to be a woman who has a mouth that speaks life. God bless you. Hug a few people on your way out. Use that mouth to say I love you to someone. In Jesus' name. See you next week.